I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 8 as we continue on in the story of the flood as we're working our way through Genesis. We come now to what we would call recreation. Last week we talked about the decreation side of the flood narrative that as we look at this story of how God was interacting with Noah and the world in the midst of the wickedness of the world, God poured his grace out on Noah and his family to save them from his wrath against sin. So Noah needed saving. And Noah didn't just need saving from the world. Noah needed saving from God and God's wrath. So we talked last week about how this story is really not a kid story. It's probably not a good bedtime story. It's probably not the one you put up on your nursery wall because we're talking about God's wrath being poured out on all creation to destroy. And that just doesn't put kids to bed in the best frame of mind. So, um, but I would say there is comfort for us. And the comfort comes that the flood is not the real story. The comfort comes because... God's relationship with Noah is the real story here. And when we see how someone can be saved from this doom, this destruction, and from the impending judgment that's coming, we can find a way forward for us, knowing that God hates sin and yet loves his people. And so we saw in chapter 6, very simply, Noah was saved just like any other person has been saved, by grace, through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that we've been saved by grace through faith, that it's not of works, it's not of ourselves. Noah was saved in the same way. God did not look down from heaven and see, look at all the evil people, but Noah, he does everything right. Let me save him. No, that's not the sense of what we read in Scripture. What we read is very simple. Noah found favor with God, chapter 6, verse 8. And the word favor there means grace. This was unmerited favor from God. Noah was a sinner. Noah was wicked in his heart. And yet he was blameless before God because God poured out his grace on Noah. And as God poured out his grace on Noah and Noah found favor with God, we're also told in chapter 6 verse 9 that Noah walked with God. What does this mean? What this means is repentance and faith. What it means is Noah knew he was a sinner and yet agreed with God about his sin. And so he turned from his sin and he walked with God. To walk with God means you can't walk in sin. And so for him to walk with God, he was going to have to agree with God, repent of his sin and believe God. He agreed with God over the evil of his sin. He turned from his sin and trusted God and he was counted righteous and blameless. This is a man who was not perfect, a man who was still a sinner and yet blameless in his generation. It's a blessing to be called righteous by God, but only God can call someone righteous. There is only one, Jesus himself said, who is good. And so for us to be called good, blameless before God, is something that only God can do, and that is by God's grace. So we see Noah in the midst of this whole story, and we got to the end of chapter 7 where they go into the ark, and now the waters are coming from everywhere. They're coming from the ground, they're coming from the sky, and there is this massive flood, a global flood, covers the whole earth above the mountaintops, and they're on a boat, seasickness probably an issue, okay, 
dealing with a whole bunch of animals, dealing with family. But in the midst of all of this, what I want you to see as we read into the next chapter is the silence of God. God was speaking, but he was speaking through wind and waves and flood. God had been speaking to Noah directly, and now it seems like God is silent. So pay attention as we're reading this, as I read chapter 8 and into chapter 9. Pay attention to when God speaks. Because I ask you, have you ever been in the middle of the storm that you knew God took you into, but he just got really quiet in the middle of it? seems to be what Noah is dealing with. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is good news for us. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with them in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Just a little aside there. You see the little homage to chapter 1 there? And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. You see the homage in chapter 7 of and chapter 6 of all of the animals by their kinds being brought into the ark. Now you're going to see the same thing coming off the ark. You're going to see blessings given and covenants given just like in chapter 1. God is in the work of recreating. So even God's discipline and judgment will bring deliverance and salvation. And so he caused... A wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Now, wait a minute. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. 150 extra days. Just start doing the math. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Just go ahead and underline in each of those verses, and he waited. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. That's another two months. Then God said to Noah, then God said to Noah. We're like six, seven months into this ordeal. Now God speaks. God said, go in. God shut up the ark. And then it seems like God shut up. In the middle of the storm, what Noah experienced outside the ark as he rocked to and fro in the ark was the judgment of God being poured out on mankind. But he didn't hear grace. 
What he saw was what God had provided. But he didn't hear from God. But then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. And the reason they repeat this here for two verses is really more or less like a kind of slow motion. So we're kind of at that slow motion portion of the, the movie, right? So the ark door opens and they enter a new world. You can just see them kind of slow motion coming out of the ark. We're meant to pause and think about how long it would take to get all these people and all these animals off the ark. Because they're repopulating a new world. Recreating, recreated by God now repopulating the earth. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, just for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is a beautiful story. but It's not a story of a flood. It's a story of God's redemption, of God recreating a world for the purpose of his glory and that a line would come from which Jesus would come to redeem his people. This has always been the purpose, hasn't it? Since the fall of mankind, that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And now God will have a line from Noah's family that will lead directly to Jesus. Noah, saved by grace through faith. And so in the middle of this story, in this six to seven month period of water drying out, wind 
doves, ravens, all of these things. What we see is God's faithfulness and Noah's faith. It begins this way in chapter 8, verse 1. And God remembered Noah. This is the hinge point of the whole story. God remembered Noah. Noah's in a boat. The only living creatures on the planet are surviving in this boat. And God remembered them. God was not just a God of justice and wrath towards sin. God was still a God of mercy and grace poured out on Noah and his family. God remembered Noah. And what we learn from Scripture, when the word remembered is used of God remembering someone, God remembering his people, God remembering Rachel in her barrenness, God remembers, God works on behalf of those whom he remembers. God works on our behalf. When he remembers his people, he works for them. He draws near to them. He acts on our behalf. He keeps his promises. God had promised Noah that I will establish a covenant with you. He promised him that before he went into the ark, I will establish a covenant with you. So God was keeping his promises by working on behalf of Noah and his family. By remembering Noah, he delivered his people. Chapter 8, verses 15 through 19 say, come out of the ark. Now, I know that day was a long-awaited day for Noah at this point, right? He had been waiting for God to tell him what to do next. God had given him all the instructions, and now he has a six-month period, basically, of being on the ark. It doesn't seem that God even tells him, send out the raven, then send out the dove. This is something that Noah, trusting that God is making a new earth, does on his own. He takes a raven and sends out the raven. Not yet, but there will be. So he sends out a dove. Not yet. So he sends out a dove. Close. So he sends out a dove now. And in between, what happens? He waited. He waited. He waited. But God was working on his behalf. And in response to God working on his behalf, Noah trusted God. Before before the flood, Noah trusted God by obeying God. God had said, I'm sending a flood. And Noah went, a what? Yeah, it's going to rain. It's going to what? Build a boat. A what? You never hear Noah saying those things, do you? Noah goes, okay, God. And he does everything that God commanded. So before the flood, Noah builds the ark. He shows his trust in God by obedience. During the flood, this is where I think maybe there's a teaching point for us today. During the flood, when it seemed like God was silent... Noah trusted God through patience. Ever been in that point in your life? Where faith in God looks less like action and more like waiting? Noah on the ark. Not much else he can do except feed the animals, go to bed, wait for the next day. Not much else he can do. He can't make the floodwaters go down. He can't make the rain stop. No amount of praying is going to change the 40 days and 40 nights and then the 150 days after that. So his faith looked a lot like patience. See, what this really comes down to is a perspective that what God was working was God was working from the future in the present. I want you to think about this. What is God up to all the time? God has a purpose and a plan, doesn't he? And what he's accomplishing is he's accomplishing his future promises and plans. And he's doing it right now. So that should be able to give us patience. Let me give you an example. 
Because all of us as Christians are kind of living this out right now. If you're a follower of Christ, your faith looks more like patience right now than anything else. And this is how I know. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior in the present, what he did in the past has been applied to you in salvation. You're not going to experience it fully for a long time. (laughs) So between the already done and the not yet happened, your faith has got to look like patience. I want my sin to be done away with. It's been paid for. It's been defeated, but I'm still fighting against it until the day I see Jesus face to face. I want peace, and it's been purchased, and I can experience it, but I don't get it fully until I see him face to face. Are you patient in your faith? Or are we constantly the people who just have to do, 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 do more, 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 more? Faith is obedience, but faith is also patience. At the end of the flood, when the 150 days are up and the dove comes back and he finally, and God says, now go out. What's Noah's first thing he does after the flood? What does his faith look like then? Then Noah, verse 20, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt sacrifices on the altar. His faith looked like worship. You see, faith without works is dead. Faith that looks like patience is our everyday. And faith that leads to worship is now our identity and who we are. In this new life, this new world, this new creation, this new creature that we are, everything that God has done in His grace drives us to worship. What does He do? He makes a sacrifice. He takes what is kind of a precious commodity at the time, food that he could eat, animals that are supposed to repopulate the earth. I mean, Noah killed an endangered species. (laughs) Not just an endangered species, all the endangered species that were clean animals. Now, that does not give us license to go kill it. Do not hear me saying that. Anybody watching online, do not go kill endangered species. What what was he saying? These are precious commodities. And he's he's willing to surrender things that are precious and worship to the Lord. What's your most precious commodity in life? The thing you have the least of and yet it's most valuable. For me, it's my family. How am I willing to surrender them to the Lord in worship? How can I be patient now for what's coming and worship now by surrendering to the things that are most precious to me? Noah showed his faith because of God's faithfulness. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. God responds. It's a beautiful thing when God pours out grace, we respond in faith, and God doesn't owe us anything from there, does he? Not at all. He's already poured out grace. He saved Noah and his family 
from a flood that everybody else was killed by. And Noah said, thank you, God. And God goes, that's pleasing to me. I mean, it literally says the aroma was pleasing. What that brings to mind is the death of Jesus and his pleasing sacrifice to the Father that he took sin and turned away God's wrath from us, taking all of the wrath of sin upon himself. Now Noah is a picture of this as he makes this sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord, turning away God's sin, turning God's wrath, turning aside God's anger towards sin. And what we see is God responding. God makes a promise. It's a promise of grace. It's not a promise contingent on anything else except that Noah trusted God. And now God says this. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, verse 21, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God in his heart a couple of chapters earlier said, I wish I had never made any of this. God in his heart now says, never again will I cut off all of this from life. This is the wrath of God against sin being turned aside. And it's not because Noah was a really righteous dude. There's only one family left on the planet. And what did God say in his heart about them? They are wicked. Then When he says man is wicked in his heart, there's only four of them. They were just on the ark. So Noah and his family, they're not perfect. They're still sinners. Man's heart condition was no different after the flood. This reminds us of the depravity of man that we must have God's grace and only God's grace to change us. Noah's offering turned aside God's wrath, propitiated God's wrath, as Romans 3 would say, that, that Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. We're told that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. God's grace was flowing out on Noah and his family and the whole earth, not because of man's goodness, but because of God's own character, because God is good. But God doesn't stop there. Not only does he make a promise, he then makes a blessing on Noah and his family. And he provides through this blessing. So there's a provision of blessing. And at the heart of this, it sounds like this, respect life and multiply. So here they come off the ark, and this is what God says. Be fruitful and multiply and inhabit the earth. Sound familiar? New creation. Go, be fruitful, multiply, inhabit the earth. But then he changes the rules on what's supposed to happen as they inhabit the earth. Now there is a a new blessing of multiplication, just like the one given to Adam. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to be fulfilling of the earth. But man's relationship with the creation is now utterly changed because of sin and because God is pouring out grace in a new way upon the earth. What's changed? First thing is animals. See, it used to be that Adam walked around and like hung out with the lions and the tigers, right? We had like pet tigers in, in the Garden of Eden. He named all the animals. He knew them intimately. He knew what their ins and outs were. He could name them based on their characteristics. Now... The animals are going to live in dread of Adam or Noah and all of the people of the earth. Now mankind was going to have dominion in a new way over animals. 
They were going to live in fear. You ever been into the woods and the deer scatter? You ever wonder why that happened? Not because you're a great hunter. <laughs> because of this. Ever tried to admit it? Ever tried to catch a squirrel by the tail? Anybody? <laughs> oh, come. I'm the only one? <laughs> all right, I got at least one. Okay, all right. Wow. All right. I, I'm different. Yeah. <laughs> My wife says I'm special. Um, no, but why do they run, right? It's Why do you go places and you're in a, na- a national park and they say, do not feed the animals? Why? Do not feed the animals. Why? Because it is unnatural for the animals to be fed by us. We're supposed to be feeding on them. Which means possibly, and it seems to indicate this in the text, that up until this point, God honoring, God fearing people, and I know this is hard for us to stomach, were probably vegetarians up to this point. Because God had given those who would obey him every green thing. Now he gives them animals to eat. So you're like, well, how's that respectful? Because he gives some qualifications. But don't eat them like they eat each other. You are not like the animals. You're different from the animals. What does he say? Don't eat them with the lifeblood. What's he talking about? He's not saying you can only eat well-done steaks because that would be a travesty. Okay? What is he saying? Don't be running out there and acting like an animal, tearing into, chewing up that which is living. Show respect to God's creation. Show respect to what God has made. Know that you have dominion, but you still have the responsibility to go act as God's ambassadors in the world. Know that he's provided food for you, but don't act like an animal. And then he goes one step further. Man's relationship with each other has changed. God gives some of his dominion over life and death to man. Look at what the text says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God, to protect his image and glory and to preserve humanity from its own violence and sin, says you take a life, your life is taken. He gives dominion to man to govern man. This is something that hadn't existed up to this point. Not with God's blessing. This is not the place or the time to discuss the capital punishment or what our feelings are on all of these things. Suffice it to say, if we're meant to show respect to the image of God imprinted on mankind, that extends far beyond life and death issues. This is one of those moments in the economy of God where he gives us the extreme. Killing, murder, image of God at stake there. Well, so is the image of God when it comes to a whole bunch of other things in the way we treat people. And whenever you have been given authority or dominion, you have responsibility. 
So consider that if you're a boss, if you're a, a parent, if you're just a community member, and the way you treat people, the way we look at people who, who have the image of God imprinted on them. Jesus would go so far as to say if you hate them in your heart, you've already killed them. That should give us pause as to how we treat people and the way we look at people in this new economy as new creatures in God's new world. God is going to accomplish his purpose. He's looking at the end game. They're going to be my people. I'm going to be their God. We're going to dwell together forever. I'm going to have one who is going to come and he's going to defeat the enemy. And so he goes one step further. Not only does he give them a promise, not only does he give them a blessing, but then he goes so far as to establish a covenant. And this covenant will speak to every covenant from that point on in the Bible, all the way to Jesus, who says, this is the new covenant in my blood. All the way to Jesus, who kept both sides of God's covenant for us to be saved, perfectly living a life of no sin and then sacrificing for sin. Saving us by his life and his death and his resurrection. Keeping God's covenant. But here, this covenant, look at verse 8. This is the promise. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God makes a covenant here, and it is a universal, unilateral, unconditional covenant. Kent Hughes says that it's universal because every human being and creature falls under this covenant. Nobody falls outside of this covenant. God makes the covenant, he says, for you, for your offspring, for all of the animals, for everything that creeps on the earth, everything is encompassed by this covenant. And what's the covenant? The covenant is something that, that if we're just being honest, there's a there's a reality to all of this that we get a universal common grace from God that he's not going to destroy us all. He's not going to destroy us all by flood. And there's a redemptive factor to this because God is the one acting. He's the one who's working. It's the same promise he made all the way back at the end of chapter 8. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to resolve in my heart not to do this. And I'm going to give them the sun, the moon, the, all the seasons. The earth is going to produce fruit. All of this is going to be redemptive. And he's working now to redeem his people in a universal covenant that everyone gets blessing. What do I mean by universal? It's not that God is saving everyone. It's this. It rained today. And it rained on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun will shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous and the unrighteous will wake up today and breathe. Because God is a God of mercy and grace. And we all experience that. But there's a special grace that he pours out through Jesus for those of us who will be saved. And that's where the unilateral side of this comes in, that God alone is the initiator and the keeper of this covenant. He's the one who's pouring out, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, declares the Lord. He's the one acting. And he pours out mercy and grace. And it's him and him alone that does this. And it's unconditional. This is based on God's mercy, not based on our goodness. 
That's good news for all of us. Let me just put it this way. It's been said before. If I could lose my salvation, I would lose my salvation. And I praise the Lord that it's not based on my goodness, but it's based on His goodness that I am saved. Noah was not saved by his goodness. We are not saved by our goodness. We are saved by His goodness. And He is good. So God, in recreating this world after the flood, is proving this. He had made a promise. He had made a plan. And nothing was going to thwart that plan. God's plans would not be thwarted by man's sin, by the enemy's schemes, or by God's own wrath towards sin. So let me make sure we understand this. God is a God of blessing and a God of grace, but God is a God who hates sin. He is holy. Romans 3 tells us that Jesus was sacrificed, was killed as a propitiation because God hates sin. And the world was kind of looking at God and going, you really hate sin? Because you keep overlooking sin. Creation kind of indicted God to say, you got let guys like David get away with it. You got let guys like Brad get away with it. You didn't destroy them. How can you say you hate sin? I mean, creation can kind of say that, can't they? We're under a curse, but you haven't destroyed us. And God, in his mercy and in his hatred towards sin, poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus, turning away his wrath from us. You know what your greatest fear in life should be? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it shouldn't be death, it shouldn't be spiders, it shouldn't be public speaking, heights, should be the wrath of God. To fall into the hands of a holy God without grace, without Jesus, should be our greatest fear. So today I ask you, what's the greatest thing God saved you from? If you're a believer in Jesus, what's the What's the most dangerous thing he saved you from? He saved you from your sin. He saved you from yourself. The most dangerous thing he saved you from is himself. And his wrath towards sin. And that's the best news, isn't it? That we are not condemned. That we will not be destroyed. That his purpose and his plan is not to destroy his people with his wrath, but to deliver them by his grace. To deliver us from our sin. To deliver us from this world. To deliver us from His holiness. So that we can be holy. There's only two options when we come up against the holiness of God. We're either destroyed by it. Or we're redeemed by it. And what God has determined. Is He will pour out grace and mercy. And He says, here's my grace. Shown to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Call on him and you'll be saved from the wrath that's to come. So the message is the same that Noah was preaching for a hundred years, isn't it? There's a judgment coming. We don't like to talk about it. It makes us feel all judgmental. Yeah, God's judging and it's coming. And what I'm offering you is an escape. 
not just an escape. I'm offering you a chance to be a part of the new creation and the new life. This new world that he's created in Jesus. This new kingdom. This new family. As new creatures. And what he says is, he does the work. We respond in faith. He does all the work. We respond in faith. He shows grace. He's perfect. We bring our sin and we respond in faith. Call upon the name of the Lord today and you will be saved. In faith. By his grace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today we would be people walking in grace, but also people of faith. That we would be able to proclaim, not just because they're words on a screen or words being sung, but we would truly be able to proclaim your mercy and grace and the greatness of our God. I thank you for this picture in the Old Testament of your grace and mercy. Remind us, it's not a story about how many animals were on the ark or how big the ark was. It's a story about how big your grace is, how much you hate sin, and how much you love us. Thank you that your plan is not to destroy us, but to deliver us. Help us to be people who would take that message to the world as we sing of your greatness and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing as we go today. This is going to be our benediction. It's one of our favorite songs to sing, and it's a song of celebration because we've been reminded again today through the baptism waters that God saves from the water, now through the water. Isn't that an amazing picture? That he saved Noah from the water. And now the picture in First and Second Peter is of baptism that God now works through the water to show us how he washes us clean. Saved from his wrath, saved to his holiness by his grace.